Chapter Five: The Leaven of Science, by Sir William Osler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Five: The Leaven of Science. Knowledge comes, but wisdom lingers. Loxley Hall. Tennyson. Who loves not knowledge? Who shall rail against her beauty? May she mix with men and prosper. Who shall fix her pillars? Let her work prevail. In memoriam. Tennyson. The leaven of science. In the continual remembrance of a glorious past, Individuals and nations find their noblest inspiration, and if today this inspiration, so valuable for its own sake, so important in its associations, is weakened, is it not because, in the strong dominance of the individual, so characteristic of a democracy, we have lost the sense of continuity? As we read in Roman history of the ceremonies commemorative of the departed, and of the scrupulous care with which, even at such private festivals as the Ambarvalia, the dead were invoked and remembered, we appreciate, though feebly, the part which this sense of continuity played in the lives of their successors, an ennobling influence, through which the cold routine of the present received a glow of energy from the touch divine of noble nature's tone. In modern lives no equivalent to this feeling exists, and the sweet and gracious sense of an ever-present immortality, recognized so keenly and so closely in the religion of Numa, has lost all value to us. We are even impatient of those who would recall the past, and who would insist upon the importance of its recognition as a factor in our lives, impatient as we are of everything save the present with its prospects, the future with its possibilities. Year by year the memory of the men who made this institution fades from out the circle of the hills, and the shadow of oblivion falls deeper and deeper over their forms, until a portrait, or perhaps a name alone, remains to link the dead with the quick. To be forgotten, seems inevitable. But not without a sense of melancholy do we recognize that the daily life of three thousand students and teachers is past heedless of the fame, careless of the renown of these men. And in the second state, sublime, it must sadden the circle of the wise as they cast their eyes below, to look down on festivals in which they play no part, on gatherings in which their names are neither invoked nor blessed. But ours the loss, since to us, distant in humanity, the need is ever present to cherish the memories of the men who in days of trial and hardship laid on broad lines the foundations of the old colonial colleges. Today, through the liberality of General Wistar, we dedicate a fitting monument to one of the mighty dead 
of the University. Caspar Wistar. The tribute of deeds has already been paid to him in this splendid structure, to all in the stately group of academic buildings which you now see adorning the campus. The tribute of words remains, to be able to offer, which I regard a very special honour. But as this is an institute of anatomy, our tribute today may be justly restricted, in its details at least, to a eulogy upon the men who have taught the subject in this university. About the professorship of anatomy cluster memories which give it precedence of all others, and in the Septemviri of the old school the chairs were arranged with that of anatomy in the centre, with those of physiology, chemistry, and materia medica on the left, and with those of practice, surgery, and obstetrics on the right. With the revival of learning anatomy brought life and liberty to the healing art, and throughout the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, the great names of the profession with but one or two exceptions, are those of the great anatomists. The University of Pennsylvania has had an extraordinary experience in the occupancy of this important chair. In the century and a quarter, which ended with the death of Laidy, six names appear on the faculty roll as professors of this branch. Dorsey, however, only delivered the introductory lecture to the course, and was seized the same evening with his fatal illness, and in the next year, physic was transferred from the chair of surgery, with Horner as his adjunct. In reality, therefore, only four men have taught anatomy in this school since its foundation. Physic's name must ever be associated with the chair of surgery. We do not know the faculty exigencies which led to the transfer, but we can readily surmise that the youthfulness of Horner, who was only twenty-six, and the opportunity of filching for surgery so strong a man as Gibson from the faculty of the University of Maryland, then a stout rival, must have been among the most weighty considerations. If, in the average length of the period of each incumbency, the chair of anatomy in the university is remarkable, much more so it is for the quality of the men who followed each other at such long intervals. It is easy to praise the Athenians among the Athenians, but where is the school in this country which can show such a succession of names in this branch? Shippen, the first teacher of anatomy, Wistar, the author of the first textbook of anatomy. Horner, the first contributor to human anatomy in this country, and Laidy, one of the greatest comparative anatomists of his generation. Of European schools, Edinburgh alone presents a parallel picture, as during the same period only four men have held the chair. The longevity and tenacity of the three Munros have become proverbial, in succession they held the chair of anatomy for 126 years. Shortly before the foundation of this school, Monroe Secundus had succeeded his father, and taught uninterruptedly for 50 years. 
his son monroe tertius held the chair for nearly the same length of time and the remainder of the period has been covered by the occupancy of john goodsir and his successor sir william turner the present incumbent to one feature in the history of anatomy in this school i must refer in passing shippen was a warm personal friend and house pupil of john hunter physic not only had the same advantages but became in addition his house surgeon at st george's hospital both had enjoyed the intimate companionship of the most remarkable observer of nature since aristotle of a man with wider and more scientific conceptions and sympathies than had ever before been united in a member of our profession and whose fundamental notions of disease are only now becoming prevalent can we doubt that from this source was derived the powerful inspiration which sustained these young men one of them on his return from england at once began the first anatomical classes which were held in the colonies the other entered upon that career so notable and so honourable which led to the just title of the father of american surgery it is pleasant to think that direct from john hunter came the influence which made anatomy so strong in this school and that zeal in the acquisition of specimens which ultimately led to the splendid collections of the worcester horner museum william shippen the younger shares with john morgan the honor of establishing medical instruction in this city when students in england they had discussed plans but it was morgan who seems to have had the ear of the trustees and who broached a definite scheme in his celebrated discourse delivered in may seventeen sixty five it was not until the autumn of the year that shippen signified to the board his willingness to accept professorship of anatomy and surgery he had enjoyed as i have mentioned the friendship of john hunter and had studied also with his celebrated brother william associated with him as fellow pupil was william hewson who subsequently became so famous as an anatomist and physiologist and as the discoverer of the leukocytes of the blood and whose descendants have been so prominent in the profession of this city no wonder then with such an education that shippen on his return in seventeen sixty two in his twenty-sixth year should have begun a course of lectures in anatomy the introductory to which was delivered in the state house on november sixteen to him belongs the great merit of having made a beginning and of having brought from the hunters methods and traditions which long held sway in this school wistar in his eulogium pays a warm tribute to his skill as a lecturer and as a demonstrator and to the faithfulness with which he taught the subject for more than forty years apart from his connection with this institution he served as director-general of the military hospitals from seventeen seventy seven to seventeen eighty one and was the second president of the college of physicians in the history of the profession of this country 
Caspar Wister holds a unique position. He is its Avicenna, its Mead, its Fothergill, the very embodiment of the physician who, to paraphrase the words of Armstrong, used by Wistar in his Edinburgh graduation thesis, sought the cheerful haunts of men and mingled with the bustling crowd. He taught anatomy in this school as adjunct and professor for twenty-six years. From the records of his contemporaries, we learn that he was a brilliant teacher, the idol of his class, as one of his eulogists says. As an anatomist, he will be remembered as the author of the first American textbook on anatomy, a work which was exceedingly popular and ran through several editions. His interest in the subject was not, however, of the knife-and-fork kind, for he was an early student of mammalian paleontology, in the development of which one of his successors was to be a chief promoter. But Wistar's claim to remembrance rests less upon his writings than upon the impress which remains to this day of his methods of teaching anatomy. Speaking of these, Horner, who was his adjunct and intimate associate, in a letter dated February 1, 1818, says, In reviewing the several particulars of his course of instruction, it is difficult to say in what part his chief merit consisted. He undertook everything with so much zeal, and such a conscientious desire to benefit those who came to be instructed by him, that he seldom failed of giving the most complete satisfaction. There were, however, some parts of his course peculiar to himself. These were the addition of models on a very large scale to illustrate small parts of the human structure and the division of the general class into a number of subclasses, each of which he supplied with a box of bones, in order that they might become thoroughly acquainted with the human skeleton, a subject which is acknowledged by all to be the very foundation of anatomical knowledge. The idea of the former mode of instruction was acted on for the first time about fifteen years ago. We have no knowledge of a collection of specimens by Shippen, though it is hard to believe that he could have dwelt in John Hunter's house and remained free from the insatiable hunger for specimens which characterized his master. But the establishment of a museum as an important adjunct to the medical school was due to Wistar, whose collections formed the nucleus of the splendid array which you will inspect today. The trustees, in accepting the gift on the death of Dr. Wistar, agreed that it should be styled the Wistar Museum, and now, after the lapse of seventy-six years, the collection has found an appropriate home in an institute of anatomy which bears his honoured name. But Wistar has established a wider claim to remembrance. Genial and hospitable, he reigned supreme in society by virtue of exceptional qualities of heart and head and became in the language of charles caldwell the sensorium commune of a large circle of friends about no other name in our ranks cluster such memories of good fellowship and good cheer 
and it stands today in this city a synonym for esprit and social intercourse year by year his face printed on the invitations to the wistar parties still an important function of winter life in philadelphia perpetuates the message of his life go seek the cheerful haunts of men how different was the young prosector and adjunct who next taught the subject horner was naturally reserved and diffident and throughout his life those obstinate questionings which in doubt and suffering have so often wrung the heart of man were ever present fightings within and fears without harassed his gentle and sensitive soul on which mortality weighed heavily and to which the four last things were more real than the materials in which he worked he has left us a journal in time in which he found as did amiel of whom he was a sort of medical prototype a safe shelter wherein his questionings of fate and the future the voice of grief of self-examination and confession the soul's cry for inward peace might make themselves freely heard listen to him i have risen early in the morning ere yet the watchman had cried the last hour of his vigil and in undisturbed solitude giving my whole heart and understanding to my maker prayed fervently that i might be enlightened on this momentous subject that i might be freed from the errors of an excited imagination from the allurements of personal friendship from the prejudices of education and that i might under the influence of divine grace be permitted to settle this question in its true merits how familiar is the cry the great and exceeding bitter cry of the strong soul in the toils and doubtful of the victory horner however was one of those on whom both blessings rested facing the spectres of the mind he laid them and reached the desired haven in spite of feeble bodily health and fits of depression he carried on his anatomical studies with zeal and as an original worker and author brought much reputation to the university particularly he enriched the museum with many valuable preparations and his name will ever be associated with that of wistar in the anatomical collection which bears their names but what shall i say of laity the man in whom the leaven of science wrought with labor and travail for so many years the written record survives scarcely equaled in variety and extent by any naturalist but how meagre is the picture of the man as known to his friends the traits which made his life of such value the patient spirit the kindly disposition the sustained zeal we shall not see again incarnate the memory of them alone remains as the echoes of the eulogies upon his life have scarcely died away i need not recount to this audience his ways and work but upon one aspect of his character i may dwell for a moment as illustrating an influence of science which has attracted much attention and aroused discussion 
so far as the facts of sense were concerned there was not a trace of pyrrhonism in his composition but in all that relates to the ultra-rational no more consistent disciple of the great sceptic ever lived there was in him too that delightful ataraxia that imperturbability which is the distinguishing feature of the pyrrhonist in the truest sense of the word a striking parallel exists between Lady and darwin in this respect and it is an interesting fact that the two men of this century who have lived in closest intercourse with nature should have found full satisfaction in their studies and in their domestic affections in the autobiographical section of the life of charles darwin edited by his son francis in which are laid bare with such charming frankness the inner thoughts of the great naturalist we find that he too had reached in suprasensuous affairs that state of mental imperturbability in which to borrow the quaint expression of sir thomas brown they stretched not his pia mater but while acknowledging that in science scepticism is advisable darwin says that he was not himself very sceptical of these two men alike in this point and with minds distinctly of the aristotelian type darwin yet retained amid an overwhelming accumulation of facts and here was his great superiority an extraordinary power of generalizing principles from them deficient as was this quality in laity he did not on the other hand experience the curious and lamentable loss of the higher aesthetic taste which darwin mourned and which may have been due in part to protracted ill health and to an absolute necessity of devoting all his powers to collecting facts in support of his great theory when i think of laity's simple life of his devotion to the study of nature of the closeness of his communion with her for so many years there recur to my mind time and again the lines he is made one with nature there is heard his voice in all her music from the moan of thunder to the song of night's sweet bird he is a presence to be felt and known in darkness and in light from herb and stone spreading itself wherever that power may move which has withdrawn his being to its own turning from the men to the subject in which they worked from the past to the present let us take a hasty glance at some of the developments of human anatomy and biology truth has been well called the daughter of time and even in anatomy which is a science in a state of fact the point of view changes with successive generations the following story told by sir robert christison of barclay one of the leading anatomists of the early part of this century illustrates the old attitude of mind still met with among bread and butter teachers of the subject barclay spoke to his class as follows gentlemen 
while carrying on your work in the dissecting room, beware of making anatomical discoveries, and above all beware of rushing with them into print. Our precursors have left us little to discover. You may perhaps fall in with a supernumerary muscle or tendon, a slight deviation or extra branchlet of an artery, or perhaps a minute stray twig of a nerve. That would be all. But beware! Publish the fact, and ten chances to one, you will have it shown that you have been forestalled long ago. Anatomy may be likened to a harvest field. First come the reapers, who, entering upon untrodden ground, cut down great store of corn from all sides of them. These are the early anatomists of modern Europe, such as Vesalius, Fallopius, Malpighi, and Harvey. Then come the gleaners, who gather up ears enough from the bare ridges to make a few loaves of bread. Such were the anatomists of last century, Valsalva, Cotunius, Hallow, Winsler, Vic Dazier, Camper, Hunter, and the two Monroes. Last of all come the geese, who still contrive to pick up a few grains scattered here and there among the stubble, and waddle home in the evening, poor things, cackling with joy because of their successes. Gentlemen, we are the geese. Yes, geese they were gleaning amid the stubble of a restricted field when the broad acres of biology were open before them. Those were the days when anatomy meant a knowledge of the human frame alone, and yet the way had been opened to the larger view by the work of John Hunter, whose comprehensive mind grasped as proper subjects of study for the anatomist all the manifestations of life in order and disorder. The determination of structure, with a view to the discovery of function, has been the foundation of progress. The meaning may not always have been for him who runs to read. Often, indeed, it has been at the time far from clear, and yet a knowledge in full detail of the form and relations must precede a correct physiology. The extraordinary development of all the physical sciences, and the corresponding refinement of means of research, have contributed most largely to the enlightenment of the geese of Barclay's witticism. Take the progress in any one department which has a practical aspect, such as in the anatomy and physiology of the nervous system. Read, for example, in the third edition of Wistar's Anatomy, edited by Horner in 1825, the description of the convolutions of the brain, on which today a whole army of special students are at work, medical, surgical, and anthropological, and the functions of which are the objective point of physiological and psychological research. The whole subject is thus disposed of. The surface of the brain resembles that of the mass of the small intestine, or of a convoluted cylindrical tube. It is therefore said to be convoluted. The fissures between these convolutions 
do not extend very deep into the substance of the brain the knowledge of function correlated with this meagre picture of structure is best expressed perhaps in shakespearean diction that when the brains were out the man would die the laborious careful establishment of structure by the first two generations in this century led to those brilliant discoveries in the functions of the nervous system which have not only revolutionized medicine but have almost enabled psychologists to dispense with metaphysics altogether end of part one of chapter five the leaven of science recording by luke sartor berkeley california